Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, once again this week, we are using a panel discussion from the Reboot Conference back in September. Uh, once again, I'm not on this panel, uh, but I thought that this particular panel would be quite interesting to listeners of this podcast. Uh, the official topic of the panel was, are tech companies silencing unpopular voices? And the discussion was fairly lively, to say the least. Uh, the moderator of the panel was Jesse Blumenthal, who manages the tech and innovation program at the Charles Koch Institute. Uh, the panelists, in the order in which they speak, are Professor Eric Goldman from Santa Clara University's Law School. Uh, Eric has been on the podcast before, and hopefully you're familiar with his work. Uh, after Eric is Corinne McSherry, who's the legal director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And once again, uh, hopefully you know about EFF, uh, and also hopefully you know about Corinne and all that she has done for EFF. Uh, finally, there is Dr. Jerry Johnson from the National Religious Broadcasters, uh, or NRB. Uh, while the official topic is about whether or not companies were silencing unpopular voices, it really turned into a discussion on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Like so many conversations about technology uh, do turn into that these days. Um, there are two reasons really why I wanted to include this particular panel as a podcast. Uh, first, I think Eric and Corinne are two of the most thoughtful commentators on Section 230, uh, explaining clearly the reasoning behind the law and also a bunch of the, the real nuances related to it that I think a lot of conversations about CDA 230 sort of gloss over. But uh, Eric and Corinne are very careful and thoughtful in how they talk about it. So I think it's always interesting to hear uh, what they have to say. Uh, the second reason why I thought this panel would make a good podcast is to hear Jerry Johnson's thoughts. Uh, I will make it clear, uh, this will not be a surprise to most people, I think, uh, that I disagree with uh, basically all of his views on CDA 230 in that um, he believes that tech companies are purposefully censoring conservatives and uh, based on what I believe is him cherry picking some examples and misunderstanding some other examples. Uh, but because of that, he argues that uh, CDA 230 needs to be changed uh, to hold the tech companies accountable for what he believes is happening. I think this would be a huge mistake. Um, and I think his examples are misleading and his analysis is, well, wrong. Uh, but I do think it's worth hearing how people are thinking about these things because his argument or arguments very similar to his are coming up over and over and over again. And so ignoring them are, is not really an option. Uh, one last thing before we get started. When Johnson starts speaking at the beginning of his portion of the panel, uh, he uh, fairly quickly pulls out a mobile phone to gesture to it to explain how everyone gets their news and information from their mobile phones these days. Uh, and he repeatedly refers to it as this, uh, you know, because we're at a panel when it was recorded and people could see it, he could gesture with the phone and say this, this, this. Uh, since you're listening, you can't see it. Uh, you won't know that, but I'm letting you know now that when he's saying, you know, they get their news from this or, or whatever he says along those lines, he is gesturing to a mobile phone. All right, uh, that's it. We are now going on to the panel. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and brutalize and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we 
Before we dive into the panel, just get a quick sense of uh, where the room is at. So uh, the topic for the discussion are tech, tech companies silencing unpopular voices. So just quickly, show of hands, um, who here thinks that uh, big tech companies are silencing conservative voices? Absolutely. OK. So we've got like half the hands up. OK, there's a follow-up. Um, who thinks it's intentional? OK, so. Getting a little less confidence, okay. And uh, who wants the government to do something about it? Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that helps to to sort of frame up this conversation, right? There's a lot of talk about bias in technology, especially uh, in social media uh, right now, and especially related to the right. Um, you know, just this morning there was a story about a report that there was a meeting uh, to brainstorm ways to promote pro-immigration uh, messaging in opposition to the Trump travel ban. Um, that didn't go anywhere, but they had a meeting about it. There's stories about uh, allegations of, you know, censorship in terms of taking down content or, or moderating content in an unfair way, maybe with a uh, finger on the scale. And so we've got uh, a really terrific panel of experts to, to help us assess this. So if, uh, to my immediate left, uh, Dr. Jerry Johnson is the president and CEO of the National Religious Broadcasters. He's previously president of Criswell College in Dallas. Uh, he's also an alum of Criswell um, and has a master's uh, from the Denver Seminary and a PhD from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, Eric Goldman's a professor of law at Santa Clara University, where he co-directs the High Tech Law Institute. Uh, he has a BA, JD, and MBA from the University of California, Los Angeles. Go Bruins! And Corinne McSherry, who you've seen before, but now in a a much more participatory role, uh, is legal director at EFF. Uh, Just try to shut me up. <laughs> uh, Corinne has a BA from UC Santa Cruz, a PhD from UC San Diego, and a JD from Stanford. Okay, so uh, I want to I want to dive right in and maybe start with Eric as the the law professor on the stage. You know, there there are sort of two interrelated claims that tend to come up in this conversation. So the first claim is uh, platforms engage in all sorts of content moderation, right? Um, you know, if you're Facebook or your Twitter or your uh, YouTube, um, having spam and Nazis and all sorts of things on your platform is generally makes for a bad user experience. And so that's, that's sort of claim one, that there's, there's things that platforms do to moderate content. Uh, claim two is is I think where we started to lose some of the audience in the hand uh, 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 raising, which is, are platforms intentionally biased in the ways in which they go about moderating content? And so uh, can you help us understand sort of uh, what is it the platforms can do and what are the sort of speech rights that users on platforms have? Uh, so let's start with the question that's on the table here. Are tech companies silencing unpopular voices? There's no question that tech companies silence voices. They don't open up the door for everybody to have their unrestricted say. 
Um, and in fact, the idea that they would do that is crazy if you think about it. Uh, we know what would happen if you had an untended garden. It would be overtaken by the, the, uh, the weeds, by uh, the, um, uh, the invasive uh, uh, pests. Um, the same thing would happen by any untended uh, internet garden, uh, that it would be overtaken by uh, the uh, people who would overgraze the resource, drive it to extinction. Um, so the point is that every uh, online site has some form of decision making about what is permissible on their site, and in theory, then things that are not permissible. They are silencing voices. They have to do that in order to exist. It's an existential requirement for them to do so. Um, so the, the real question then becomes, how do they decide what's acceptable and what isn't, and what kinds of biases are baked into that decision-making? And the thing that we have to get on the table to start with is that whatever the decision is about what's permissible and what isn't reflects a form of bias. It could be an attempt to be as, quote, neutral as possible, but there is no such thing as neutrality when it comes to deciding content that's permissible to publish and content that isn't. There's no such way to do that in a truly neutral fashion. There will always be some form of bias baked into that process. So are internet companies biased? Yes, they have to be in order to exist to draw the line between what they're going to permit or not. And uh, the law permits them to make that decision, uh, to decide what they're going to allow and what they aren't. And there are two different sources of that permiss, uh, th that uh, uh, um, authorization. The first is the First Amendment, uh, that internet companies are publishing third-party content. And by publishing third-party content, they are covered by the same First Amendment rights of free speech and free press that are baked in the Constitution that all of us uh, expect that a media company would have. The second source of their permission is uh, Section 230, which Congress passed in 1996, that basically says websites aren't liable for third-party content. And extrapolated to this situation, it says that if they exercise the discretion to remove content, they're not liable for exercising that discretion. They're given a free pass from liability for exercising discretion because we want them to do the kinds of things to tend their garden to keep it from being overgrazed and uh, overrun. Um, because of those rights and because the internet companies we're going to talk about today are not state actors, there are no independent First Amendment rights on the part of users. Um, there are certainly free speech interests that every internet company is interested in, but they're not legally required to give a platform to anybody. So if we, when we talk about having to publish third-party content that decides one, we'll call it something like a must-carry obligation, that they must carry content that they would otherwise choose to, uh, to reject. And the law doesn't mandate a must-carry obligation. In fact, it mandates the opposite. So... Corinne, I want to dig in maybe a, a bit with you. And so, you know, th both as we've been talking so far and quite frankly throughout the day, whenever we've talked about tech or big tech or platforms, um, that can mean a whole lot of different things. And it manifests both in terms of uh, different actual uh, products and different uh, sort of venues, but also different experiences for users. So, so given sort of what Eric just laid out about the sort of general legal rights and frameworks, um, how should we think about, uh, say, social media compared to search, compared to, say, online marketplaces or other, or other sort of uh, parts of the garden? Yeah, so that's a great question, and I think really important as you know these debates continue. We have a lot of talk about tech companies and 
tech and regulating tech. And it matters a lot what you're even talking about. So for example, we might have a conversation about social media companies and social media platforms and um, moderation on those platforms. And we might come up with a set of policies for what we think should happen there. Um, I have strong feelings about what those are, but setting that aside for the moment, those conversations and anything that comes out of that, even best practices, are probably going to be markedly different if you're not talking about social media, but you're talking about something like an ISP. So let's say you've got someone who comes out really strongly like, you know, ban all Nazis. And I, you know, I want you, you free reign to shut down all the Nazis. Uh, Facebook should shut down all the Nazi speech on, on its platform. Setting aside whether you agree with that or not, I'm just saying, if you thought that, but would you also think, and I think that Comcast should be making, should be monitoring the accounts of all its customers, and if they find it associated with any unsavory speech, they should shut them off the internet altogether. And keep in mind that you know, situation where you might not have another ISP to go to. I think that we would think of those two um, kinds of tech very, very differently. And I, I think of it as ISPs are a little bit more infrastructure or a lot more infrastructure, basic internet access, social media platforms, maybe it's a little bit different. Another point that I would want to make, and this goes back to the panel that I was moderating, I feel like a lot of these conversations would feel really differently, would feel very different um, if we actually had more competition. I think it matters that the decisions that Facebook makes, the decisions that Twitter makes, feel like they have a very, very outsized effect on people's ability to communicate with broad audiences because we don't have a hundred Facebooks, we have one. Um, so the, this conversation I think is difficult to have. What does silencing really mean? Um, that's only really a meaningful uh, approach if you actually think that there, that a given social media platform and this moderation decisions actually can silence anybody. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to downplay the effect of them, but I'm just saying we, it's difficult to think about moderation without, without also thinking about the fact that maybe we don't have as many alternatives for speech as we would like. So, so I actually want to pick up on that theme and, and Jerry, bring you into the conversation here. Right. So, um, there, there's sort of two interrelated questions here. Um, one is how big is the market for speech? Right, so so how many different venues you represent? A whole bunch of broadcasters, or one venue, but there but there are plenty of others that we've talked about throughout the day. So so how sort of broad is the marketplace for speech, and uh, and to what degree are the sort of claims of of censorship uh, actually justified? Like, is this is this a sort of anecdotal uh, media story driven thing, or is there evidence of any sort of systemic bias or systematic bias? Thank you. Um, NRB is 75 years old. NRB is 75 years old. And this answers your question. Uh, radio preachers and teachers were the most popular radio programs in the 40s, more populous, popular than Amos and Andy, for instance. But all of a sudden, they were just taken off the air. Mutual took them off. CBS took them off. NBC took them off, and these broadcasters got together and formed national religious broadcasters to try to get back on, and they did get back on in about two or three years. But that brings up the fact that uh, there's radio, there's television. Our listeners are about 60 million a week, not potential audience. It's actual listening audience. But I've got to say, today, 
this is where people are doing life. And I'm not sure your question um, follows for the discussion in this regard. That is, you can be on radio or TV, but if you're not on this, you're not on the public square today. And so, um, you know, looking at the question of the session, I, you know, I do admit we're, we're, we're out there. Uh, there's a great divergence of voices, but um, more people have one of these today in the world than have a TV or a radio. It's the most ubiquitous way people are doing life. So I think that is the, the question I want to talk about. And I've got a quote I brought that answers, I think, the question. Um, and I want you all to guess who said this. Don't look at my notes here. If a handful of tech executives decide to block you from their services, your content effectively can't be on the Internet. A handful, he said. Wasn't me. This was Cloudflare. Cloudflare CEO Matthew Prince. Um, he said another thing. He said, quote, there are a few gatekeepers to the public square. He used the word public square. I think that's very interesting. The blogs and social media that serve as today's soapboxes and pamphlets. I mean, this is reality. This is what Facebook is and Twitter is. It's the new speaker's corner. And the final quote was this one. An uneasiness about, quote, Invisible but ubiquitous companies deciding what content can be online. The pre-internet analogy would be if Ma Bell listened in on phone calls and could terminate your line if it didn't like what you were talking about. And so, as you mentioned, CDA 230, I think that's the, the atmosphere for CDA 230. The idea was this is a new medium. Let's give them lots of space, lots of latitude, lots of legal maneuverability, and uh, it's neutral, basically. If they're going to run a neutral platform, well, they shouldn't be liable. But uh, depending on the answer to the question of the panel, if they're not neutral, uh, does CDA 230 still need to apply? I think that's the question. So I want to dig into neutrality in just a moment. But before I do, because I know I can see Eric and Corinne both eager to jump yeah, into yeah, that yeah, one, yeah. I promise you we will talk about neutrality for all the neutrality fans. And the audience. Um, I do, I do want to stick with the question I asked you before, though, right? So I think you've articulated a number of ways in which theoretically there could be blocks to speech or a number of ways in which people who have authority or some level of power within different pa paths of speech might exercise that power. I guess what I'm asking is, is there any evidence that this is actually occurring? Absolutely. I, you know, I, dis I agree with Eric. He wrote an article a, a month ago who said, he said, you know, um, if there was this bias, they're fully protected. I agree with that. The First Amendment is there, and that's one of our principles, defending free speech. But he actually said there was no evidence of bias against conservatives. I think you said that twice in the piece. I've said it many times. And um, <laughs> there he is. And so we've been tracking it for eight years, since 2010. And I brought maybe 20 or 30 uh, timelines here of, of, the of the bias, if you want to see it. But actually, you've got your phone. Just go to internetfreedomwatch.org. There is a timeline, starting with Chuck Colson being thrown out of uh, Apple's App Store in 2010 for the Manhattan Declaration. 
I mean, this is a mainstream public figure expressing mainstream conservative Christian views, and he's thrown out of the App Store uh, for that. Fast forward to Representative Marsha Blackburn when she announced for her Senate campaign, she mentions Planned Parenthood, and Twitter throws her out. Mike Huckabee thrown off of Facebook. Todd Starnes thrown off of Facebook. These aren't dollar-a-holler preachers, you know, off uh, on hate speech. These are mainstream public figures. You don't see... A, a correlation with Al Sharpton being taken off, or Rachel Maddow being taken off, Planned Parenthood being taken off. But you just—it is a pattern. So it is—it is there. If it's I can ask you about there. that, right? Yes. So you pointed to a number of different examples and named a number of very prominent people who frequently appear on television, in the newspapers, on their own social media accounts, and the social media accounts of others. So, so is their speech actually being silenced? On Facebook, it is. On Twitter, it is. Eric, let me ask you. So uh, uh, Jerry referenced, I think, some of the things that you've said in the past about the, these claims being pretty unsubstantiated. Um, is there actually any evidence of sustained or a systematic bias against conservatives or silencing of, of speech? Yeah, so it's pretty easy to cherry pick out anecdotes where um, uh, conservatives have been uh, silenced. Um, we could e just as easily pick out um, anecdotes from whoever the opposite side is. I don't know what Who? conservative one. needs anymore. Your name one? Um, I, I don't track it the way you do, but certainly when you see all the complaints, I just posted one, in fact, by a guy named Muhammad who said he was suing YouTube for having shut down his voice for the same reason. In fact, in my internet law class, I teach a case from 2003, the NOAA case uh, versus AOL, where he said he was being discriminated against by AOL because of his uh, uh, status as a Muslim. So we have it across the board in every respect. The whole point was, and this is what I tried to introduce it, is that, that when uh, internet companies make distinctions on content, they are going to exhibit bias that's intrinsic in the process. So we can find examples where they exhibit bias against particular categories of speech. However, what we can't do is show that that was based on because they were conservative as opposed to because they met some standard that got triggered that caused them to be kicked out. One of the things I find so fascinating is the number of people who are claiming to be conservatives who are suing the internet companies right now for having been kicked off who really actually by many objective people standards are really just trolls. They are actually engaging in discourse that is harming the community and interfering with the ability of the other users to engage in themselves in a socially productive way. So whether they're conservative or not, they're harming the community. They have to be uh, uh, managed or else the community will leave and there will be nothing left of, of the resource. So, Eric, I want to come back to this neutrality point, right? So I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to remember a time when conservatives, particularly conservative broadcasters, used to lament the old fairness doctrine that existed and celebrate uh, its effective repeal. And uh, I think when Jerry raises CDA 230 and claims that there's a neutrality requirement in it. Um, it's it, a requirement, assumption. A neutrality assumption. assumption in it. Um, that, that sounds a lot like a sort of fairness doctrine for the internet. So, so one, is there a neutrality assumption in CDA 230? And two, should there be? So there are two parts of Section 230. There's Section 230C1 that basically says web websites aren't liable for third-party content. There's Section 230C2 that is basically a, a safe harbor for filtering content. 
Um, the safe harbor for filtering content uh, has a good faith requirement, and one could impute in norms that might look like something like if you're exhibiting animus towards a particular person, that would no longer be good faith. Um, Section 231 doesn't have any good faith requirement. It doesn't have any intrinsic assumptions about neutrality or not. And Section 231 only makes sense if the idea is that you're making distinctions among content. In fact, the whole goal was to motivate internet companies to screen out content that they considered to be problematic, and they were fearful of doing so if they were going to be sued by everyone for having done so. So the whole point of Section 230 was to motivate companies to do the things that now they're being sued for, and Section 230 is designed to actually squelch those lawsuits. So, Corinne, um, given everything that that sort of uh, has just been articulated, there are lots of folks on the right who sort of raise the specter of censorship, right? And, and so they'll say, uh, Facebook's censoring me, Twitter's censoring me, insert company that I'm mad at here is censoring me because I don't like this decision or I don't understand the decision. Um, how should we think about uh, sort of the notion of censorship in this context? Is censorship the right uh, sort of framework to understand these types of decisions in? So, so a couple of things. So first, I, I do want to go back a little bit to, to the question of, so there's concerns on the right, but I will tell you for every complaint, sitting from EFF, we get complaints about takedowns all the time. I've been fielding them for 13 years, I'm telling you, for, of all different kinds. And for every complaint from one side of the political spectrum, trust me, there is a complaint from the other side of the political spectrum. And if you want to see a collection, you can go to onlinecensorship.org, which is an EFF project that's try been trying to collect data about takedowns, not copyright related, other kinds of takedowns, how, the, how Facebook in particular is responding to them, and, and so on. And I want to come back to that in a second because I, I think part of the discussion needs to be about transparency. We need better information about, to even have this conversation, we need to know more about what's actually getting taken down. But to your question, um, I think the question of, you know, Eric and I have some disagreements about whether we should use, and lots of people have disagreements, my boss too, have, has disagreements about whether we should be thinking about this stuff as censorship. Because traditionally when we think about the censor, we think of it as the government going in and um, interfering and interfering with speech. And in fact, one of the things that's great, particularly in the United States, is we have some pretty strong, cl relatively clear rules about what to do when the government is trying to um, interfere with your speech. But I think it's a reality that we have a situation where much, much more speech is being, I'm not going to say silence, I'm not going to adopt that word, but lots and lots of private companies have a lot of influence on um, how speech is circulated and to whom it is circulated um, and whether you're going to sort of have access to a wide audience or a broad audience and so on. And so I think of this as private censorship. But I also think that we have another reality, which is that there, um, there's a lot of pressure from governments on companies to engage in that kind of censorship. So I, and I'm worried that we're going to see more of it. So I sometimes think like the line between um, private censorship and, um, and sort of governmental censorship, you know, sometimes can get blurred. So when you've got attorneys general meeting to talk about how can we, you know, lean on the companies more thoroughly to have them take down speech more, you know, that seems to me to start ble bleeding those lines together in pretty scary ways. 
So, Jerry, I want to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't really care what you think about the president right now, but let's just assume a hypothetical in which you disagree with the person who happens to be in power. You know, the president, the attorney general, whoever the, the sort of government actor here is. Uh, Corinne raises the specter that, that one of these sort of worrying elements, and we've heard this in the privacy discussion, we heard this in the uh, competition discussion, this you know, third panel in a row, there may be a trend here. Um, how much do you worry about uh, government having the ability to lean on private companies to, uh, to sort of coerce speech or, or coerce um, content moderation decisions in their preferred way? I am worried about it, and um, you know, I, I mean, I wish the, the panel would see this, the uh, the bias issue the way I do. Uh, but I think your your audience, at least there was a, a goodly number of the audience did, and previously today, you know, fifty five percent at one point said they thought the companies were getting too big. So here's my message, you know, Silicon Valley has to do something to fix this or others are going to try to fix it, the government. And I'm against that. I think I'm in agreement with everybody here. I don't want trust busting right now. I don't want a breaking up of monopoly. I don't want forced transparency re reporting and requirements, uh, regulation, the Department of Justice saying, you know, they're looking into this competition issue. I'm not for that. And uh, you might have assumed I'm for that. Uh, I think we've got to be, though, honest about um, um, what ought to happen. We've been calling for this for eight years for the tech companies to adopt some sort of free speech charter based on First Amendment principles. That's American. It's fair play if you say you're a public square. Uh, you know, not an echo chamber, but a true public square. And uh, let's be honest about um, 230. Um, this would not be a new program. This would not be regulation. It would be the lifting of a privileged protection. It actually would be a form of deregulation in one sense. And I, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, not the whole thing. You were very clear to talk about certain elements, but I think they need to get a scalpel, an exacto knife, and carve out a very particular space for Facebook, for Twitter, for Google, for YouTube, something that... I mean, they could use people like you to do it. But you brought up Yelp in an article you wrote uh, a month ago, how, how cool it is that Yelp, if somebody is um, doing a review for a restaurant, it's a negative review for a restaurant, that Yelp can't be sued for a negative review, even if it's libelous, I think you said. So, that, that's interesting, but dig a little deeper. What if people were getting food poisoning at the restaurant? And trying to post that, and what? And what if deal. Yelp decided we're for, we're going to pull those? We're going to pull those reviews, and people started dying at the restaurant. Do we not think that Yelp or the restaurant? Do we not think that they would be should have their day in court? Carving out this section of two thirty, all it would do is say, if you're going to push your hand on the scale in the great public debates of the day not against obscure Nazis and people often, but on mainstream people like Dennis Prager. If you're going to press the scale, 
then have your day in court. You go to court, we've got a judicial system. Why do you need an extra layer of protection? They're big. It's time to leave the incubator. I guess that's another way I would put it. 2.30 came in when it was a new day. Let's give them a lot of space. Uh, why do they need that now? So I guess I'll briefly respond to the hypothetical and tell me if I get it wrong. All right. But, uh, in a world in which a number of people post reviews on Yelp about how they got food poisoning from a particular restaurant, and then Yelp decided to remove the food poisoning reviews, and then more people went into the restaurant and got food poisoned as a result, is Yelp responsible for that? that that's basically the question. Um, I will say, for the record, I'm not a lawyer. I've never taken one of Eric's finals. I imagine a hypothetical like this might be on something like a legal final. Um, I think the restaurant's responsible for poisoning people if they serve contaminated food. Um, and, and that's why we have all sorts of mechanisms for governing restaurants, ranging from uh, health and safety standards to liability lawsuits to insurance products to user reviews, which exist in Yelp and lots of other places. But, but Eric, I, I want to turn to you because I saw you grimacing as the prospect of carving up carving up Section 230 in a precise way to, uh, to, to make possible a sort of statement of First Amendment-esque principles about the public square. Um, is that a workable proposal? Is that something we ought to be considering for 230? Yeah, I, I'll start with the, the comment that we could should deregulate Section 230 because Section 230 is actually one of the most brilliant examples where Congress deregulated a space to enable innovation. And uh, so to dial back Section 230 is to re-enable the regulation that has been pushed back by the law. And so, you know, I, I just like, I couldn't even wrap my head around the idea of deregulating Section 230. That misunderstands so grossly how Section 230 is a shining beacon of deregulation, all the benefits that it created from it. Um, I was interested in your comment about uh, the idea that the internet companies should have a free speech charter. In fact, most internet companies uh, have reflect the free speech norms of the U.S. Um, in ways that are inconsistent with most other countries' norms. Um, and so we've actually seen what happens with the, quote, free speech charter that's applied in other countries with other norms. Turns out they really don't like it. Um, and there's a lot of regulatory pushback in those other countries to the free speech norms that they already have. So we've seen that they already have it. It's just that in the U.S., they're actually, we are the outlier globally. And when we tried to export that, it turns out it doesn't go so well. But the real incursion on the, the free speech charter that you have isn't going to come from the internet companies with them saying, let's go and prop up a restaurant's business by suppressing news of food poisoning so people will die. I don't think that's really a long-term winning business model. Um, I don't think that it's, um, it's going to come from what Corinne talked about, the soft regulation that's going to come. And we're seeing it even today by having this very conversation, these questions that, uh, uh, that, that we're all fostering, saying we think that there's bias against conservatives. Is. The internet companies, they're creatures of the public sphere, they hear this and they think, oh, I need to somehow be 
uber careful about not exhibiting anything that might look like bias because of the fact then that I'll be feeding into these, these uh, allegations. And so we're seeing that coming from the government. When the government calls up and says, we think that you're stifling free expression, that's a, 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 a huge red flare to the internet companies. Do more to take care of our interests or we're going to come in and regulate you. And that form of coercion is exactly the kind of thing that you should be really not encouraging because it's actually the worst of all worlds. It's the government mandating without actually passing laws. Um, I don't think I actually even answered your, your final question, which was the, Did the I question. Did I pass the exam? Huh? Did I pass the exam? Uh, you got an A. Um, so, uh, the, but the real question was, um, uh, I think, could we take an exacto knife to Section 230 to somehow bake in the idea that, that it should be more pro-free speech? There are actually things we could do to enhance Section 230, anti-slap laws, anyone who wants to have a conversation about that. Um, but if but in terms of uh, saying, let's just create one more exception to Section 230 that will require this or the other thing. If we're talking about anything that is like, you have to let more voices on there, anything that we create on there is going to be, everyone's going to say, whatever that exception is that you just gave, that's the reason why I'm going to sue you. I was in that category. You didn't respect my rights properly. I'm coming in and I'm suing you. It is shocking to me how many lawsuits we're seeing today that are facially preempted by Section 230 on exactly the kinds of things that you, you were just describing. And this is what the law in place. You create an exacto knife, the floodgates will open. So, Corinne, uh, Section 230 is often painted as this sort of all-encompassing sort of grant of immunity, um, uh, but, but it's not, and sort of the knowledge and behavior of platforms can implicate their liability. And so while I want to get you into this debate too, I was wondering if you could also comment on sort of the, the limits of Section 230 and, and when companies actually do become liable. Well, so so one, we actually right now have an example of someone trying to take an exacto knife to Section 230. There was recently legislation passed um, that was ostensibly designed to target um, when websites are hosting material that might be related to to sex trafficking and child trafficking, and um, it was very difficult to argue against because everyone said, "Well, I hate tra sex trafficking and child trafficking. That must be terrible, and so therefore I'm going to vote for this legislation because because I love children." Um, but in fact. What it really did was create a situation where now you have new liability for for websites if they um, carry certain kinds of content. And as you know, many people predicted, um, sites are being extremely conservative in what they will now post because they are afraid of liability and. Full disclosure, EFF has a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of this law, which we are going to win. But anyway, um, in the meantime, we have this situation, and it's, and it's, and it's caused um, some very significant um, collateral damage. So, for example, I don't know how people in this audience feel about sex workers, but there are a lot of people who make a living that way, and they were using Craigslist to do so much more safely than they could do so on the street. Um, they can't do that anymore, and we've had reports at EFF where people are saying, I am now in danger. Uh, but we also have people like massage therapists, um, and uh, that's how they made their living, and they can't use Craigslist anymore either. So, you know, it's just an example of, like, when we, you try to take this exacto knife approach, there can really be a lot of dangerous collateral damage, even when you're trying to do the most laudable possible thing, right? Um, so that, that worries me a lot. Um, the other thing that, that I do want to say back to some of what we were talking about before is I do think, and even thinking about the Yelp example, look, the smartest thing that Facebook could do right now 
to kind of ward off and to respond to complaints about bias is to be way, way more transparent and clear about what gets taken down where and how. So getting back to the online censorship.org project, one of the reasons we had to do this, we had to collect information from users because Facebook is not providing this information in a comprehensive way. So it's really hard to tell what they're up to, what the takedowns look like, um, so that you could actually make a reasonable assessment. It shouldn't be up to um, people like Jerry's organization or, you know, people on the user side to desperately try to put together information when Facebook has that information for itself and could be providing it. And if they're not engaging in unfair bias, um, let's find out. The other thing that they should be doing um, is we need for all of the, as, as a practical response to all of this, short of regulation or anything like that, in addition to more transparency, we need sort of equivalent due process of some kind so that if your stuff is taken down, you don't have to be Marsha Blackburn to make a stink about it and have an opportunity to have your material put back up if you think that it was taken down unfairly. Some of the big companies have something like this, but it's very difficult for people to negotiate. They don't really understand a lot of times why their content's even being taken down. So, you know, this seems to me sort of like low-hanging fruit that I would encourage our friends in Silicon Valley, you know, to, to pick up <laughs> because, you know, they could be doing a lot to address the concerns that people have. Um, and I don't think it would be cheap, but nonetheless, it, you know, it's a way of showing their good faith and, and showing that they are, you know, being, you know, good actors and good citizens if, as they claim to be. So, uh, Jerry, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you your views on sex workers. Um, I am going to ask you to talk a bit right. more about Dennis Prager. Then. So you raised the example of Dennis Prager uh, recently, and Dennis Prager filed an unsuccessful lawsuit uh, against YouTube. Um, can you walk us through that example, what, sort of, both just so everyone's on the same page about what actually happened, but, but why you think that's a sort of justified case where, where he is being silenced and in what way? Yeah, in the course of that, I also want to respond to what she said. I, th I think, uh, and I do recommend some of the things that Corinne has written. When I say, you know, we're call the, to me the best solution is the free speech charter, which the companies themselves would come up with, which would, um, I think, keep the government out. Uh, that's what we're hoping for. And it would be their own voluntary change. And one of the issues would be an appeals process that's clear because this isn't theoretical for me. We were blocked. NRB TV, I have a TV channel, 378 on DirecTV. We were blocked. We run a live stream on uh, the YouTube live. We were blocked. We got a three-month shutout. We asked, why? Well, you're violating community standards. Now, our goal has been sort of a, a PBS, NPR model of Christian television. Not, again, the dollar a holler version or the, the wackos, but we have uh, debates, we have apologetics, we have history, we have archaeology, and we have people who have strong views on this and that. But we never got a clear answer. And because we're near the office there in D.C. and my staff has a relationship with our staff, it was just extraordinary going over there and badgering them. And they finally took the block off. They never told us why we had been, except we had violated community standards. They didn't say what show it was or anything. So back to Prager. This was part of his frustration. If you study that case, if you go on their website, look at Prager U stuff and read what happened, it took months for them to get straight answers. Who did this? Why did they do it? They would not tell them why they did it. And um, so they were demonetized. 
They were put in the adults-only section, which is really for pornography and violence. And so if you're in a public library, you can't watch or Alan Dershowitz's video on the Palestinian-Israeli crisis. Now, does anybody think that Alan Dershowitz is over the top and that you ought to have to... Uh, well, some of you do. But, I mean, I'm a conservative and Alan's a liberal. But, uh, you know, his view on the Palestinian-Jewish question ought to be in the public library, I think. I don't think it should be in the pornography filter. I don't think it should be demonetized. That's the kind of thing. The Korean War history, that's taken out. And I'm aware of examples you've cited about, you know, the famous uh, naked child picture in Vietnam. So I, I'm aware of the, the, the difficulties, but uh, they need to fix this quickly. And what I'm saying is if they don't do this by December 31st, mind you, we are going to ask um, Congress to take a look at 230. We're going to do that to say, let's, let's have a hearing. Let's just have a hearing. Very careful, thoughtful uh, hearing. Um, so, so, yeah. Exact yeah. knives. But uh, we're feeling it. So, um, Eric, I want to bring you in here. We, we've talked already a little bit in this discussion. I'm sure we could spend a lot more on ways in which Section 230 might be changed. But, but in the world as it is, um, uh, going through the Dennis Prager example, which I know is a case you've written about and, and looked at uh, in some length, um, it is that an accurate description of the events as it occurred uh, in the sort of Prager case? And was the Prager case correctly decided? Well, the Prager case really turned on questions about whether we should think about YouTube as, I believe that one was the company town case. Um, and uh, that's an easy call. We have some uh, incursions on the First Amendment for uh, company towns that, uh, where the uh, parks and streets and other places that we assume to be public spaces for dis discourse are owned by private entities. And so we've created an incursion for First Amendment on that. And YouTube is nothing like that. It's not even close. Uh, the offline analogy doesn't come anywhere close to extending to the online world. Um, and so that case was rightly decided. As for the merits of particular, uh, whether or not Prager University's videos should be uh, um, freely available, should be available, but only to limited or restricted audiences, whether they should be fully monetized or limited monetization or not monetized at all. I don't actually have a strong view about that. The, the point from my perspective is that that's YouTube's job to figure that out. And uh, they are going to make mistakes and they're going to exhibit bias. They, every time they make a con decision to leave up or take down, they are exhibiting their form of bias. That's, that's unavoidable. But I want them to have the freedom to do so because for every Prager you who you might say, well, I could see why, there's a thousand other cases where you'd say, I really want that content off. That content is not contributing to society. It needs to go. And I don't want the government to sign that. I want YouTube to make that decision. But if YouTube fears for every time that they, uh, they um, uh, uh, get it wrong with Prager you, but get it right with these thousand other cases, they're going to get suits from the thousand other people as well. They're not going to take it down. And that ends up leading to the problem that I outlined at the beginning, that in the end, the trolls win and we all lose. Um, so that's why I, I just, uh, I don't think discussing Prager use merits are really the right inquiry because you're not talking about the thousand other situations that are also going to be handled similarly. So I think the, the point you just raised on scale is really meaningful and really important here. Um, I'm not going to rehearse the entire argument here, but I'll just put in a plug for Kate Klonick's paper, uh, The New Governors, which is an excellent discussion of some of the, the challenges at scale. Um, 
One of the things, Corinne, I want to ask you about um, is we've had some experience in the past of dealing with content moderation challenges at scale and this sort of back and forth that that creates and the impact of sort of getting the decision wrong. And that, despite Adam's admonition not to talk about IP ever before, uh, is in the IP context. And so I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, as someone who's fairly active in the IP world, what are some of the, the lessons from content moderation in that context that are relevant for this discussion? Oh. <laughs> you just getting me. Yeah, like I know. seven minutes. Seven minutes. Okay. Um, I'm actually, I, I'm working on a, a post about this very thing right now. Um, so th- I, there's, there's a few lessons that we can learn. Um, one thing we can learn is that mistakes will be made, and a lot of mistakes will be made. And when mistakes are made at scale, even if you only mess up 1% at the time, that's a lot of speech. Um, so at, at EFF, you know, we, uh, we've litigated and been involved in a lot of situations where fair uses, legal content, was um, accused of being infringing and was taken down. So mistakes are going to be made. So start with that um, and realize that that's going to have a speech impact, right? Because if it's a fair use, it's lawful speech and it shouldn't have been taken down or it's a problem that it got taken down. Okay, so mistakes will be made. The bots won't save you. So one of the things that we've seen in the copyright context is an idea like, well, we can adopt filters or content ID or we'll adopt all of these um, um, well, just sort of have the computers do it for us, <laughs> and and we'll take humans out of the equation. Um, and that doesn't work. And uh, it does. There are ways in which you can use filtering technologies to assist, but you're still going to have the problem of having lawful speech taken down, which is why you need two more things. You why you need um, redress. You need robust systems for redress. You also need robust systems for accountability because another thing that can happen is that people will take advantage of, you know, community standard stuff just like they took advantage of the the DMCA process to target speech that they just don't like. And even if that speech is only taken down for a little while while people figure out what's going on, if there's something happening in the news or whatever and it's really relevant to that moment, it can be profoundly influential and profoundly um, damaging. And the last lesson that um, that I have learned from the from the copyright wars is, and I this is me talking to to the platforms, um, despite what I was saying just now. If you think that if you adopt enough voluntary censorship, um, then everyone will get off your back and governments will get off your back, not true. They will never be satisfied, right? There will always be more. There will always be more. We have passed, there have been so many different copyright initiatives and it's never enough. It's never enough. So, you know, appeasement doesn't work. (laughs) So the way you should think about it is something different, which is what do I think would be good for my community? What do I think would be good for my users? And try to start from that place as opposed to how many things can I do to get the government regulators off my back? Because you're not going to get yourself to the right place and you'll end up giving up too much. So it it can tend to feel in these conversations, because this is a particularly salient topic right now, that this is something new, something that we're just now grappling with. Um, you know, I, in the context of doing some research for this panel, Eric, I came across a paper you wrote in 2006 about search engine bias um, that included an entire section that said search engine bias is both necessary and desirable. Um, We spent a lot of time talking about the necessary, 
right? Uh, spam and Nazis and not the community you want to create and all of those sorts of things. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about uh, why is bias actually desirable in platforms? So again, we think of bias in the negative context, but here we're thinking about bias as just preferencing something over something else. And in making those kinds of preferences, biased in favor of some and biased against others, um, that's exactly what we expect things like search engines to do. We don't want them to just give us everything in some random order. That would be a non-functional search engine. We want something that will read our mind, figure out what we think is most relevant, and then give it to us in an order that we can digest it. That is an extremely valuable thing. But in order to figure out what things are more relevant and thereby inference less relevant, that's a form of bias. So we need that in order for the functional tools to work. We can apply that across any other online space and honestly against any media ecosystem. Every media ecosystem has bias. Now, in order for the bias to not ultimately have adverse consequences, it helps if we have competition. So what we also need then along with that is that we want a search engine with bias A and we want search engine with bias B and we want search engine with bias C and we'd like to be able to graze between them to figure out which ones are most relevant to us, which are picking out the biases that best represent our interests. And so that comes back to the competition piece. If we had more competition on these fronts, we might not care as much about the fact that uh, uh, one site is a little bit more restrictive on what they allow and other sites are a little bit more, uh, uh, everything is okay. Um, because that would let us as uh, publishers and as consumers figure out the best match for us. So uh, to wrap up, because uh, I can see that our time is running low, um, this type of conversation, I think, is important. It's good that we're talking about speech platforms and, and the, the ways in which people do and don't express themselves online and the, all the sort of ensuing events that happen. Um, it can also be a bit gloomy um, from time to time, right? Um, and so uh, you all express yourselves pretty regularly. You're all fairly active writers and speakers. And so in the one or two minutes that we have remaining, I'd ask in a sort of optimistic spirit, given the variety of mechanisms that people have to express ourselves uh, online, um, how do you go about it? What is a good way for people to actually speak online? In whatever order this surprise question you'd like to deal with. Well, I just want to say, you know, as a conservative and as a Christian, um, you know, we have a very particular belief uh, as a Christian, that we're all sinners in need of a Savior and that Christ is the Savior who died on the cross and rose again. And there's a belief that we were supposed to tell the world, that that's a mission. And I, I just want to say the beautiful thing about the Internet, the iPhone, the um, Facebook, Twitter, I mean, this could be for any product anyone has, any political movement anyone has. I mean, and we're still early in the day, I think, in terms of what the possibilities are for the Internet. So I want to affirm you, Silicon Valley, um, all of you here on the platform and out there, because um, this has been a great success for business, for nonprofits, uh, for education, uh, what we're able to do and see and, and the way we're able to get our message out. So I'm very positive and I probably was the... The Scrooge up here, I understand that, with the exacto knife. But I'm very, I am very encouraged by the um, possibilities to get the message out 
it's it's here. It's great. So I, I'm going to have – this is a curveball question. Um, but uh, the answer is actually pretty simple. Um, I think about what content I need to have that I control and I build my own audience directly without the intervention of intermediaries who could cut off my access to that audience. And when it's better to go to another platform that gives exposure to a different audience or to a larger audience and how I can use that to help reach new channels that I couldn't otherwise reach. My, my, the answer to your question is there's always a role for me to have a direct line to my audience, not intermediate by any third party, because the moment I depend on a third party, then I am contingent upon whatever biases they might exhibit and how I interact with that, whatever policies they might change that might restrict or interfere with my audience. So um, if you are thinking about how you can best serve your community, I encourage you to think about at least one of those channels being a direct reach to the audience without the intermediation because the intermediaries might end up having adverse interest to yours. Um, so it's, um, I agree a lot with what Eric said because one of the things that we talk a lot about at EFF is, you know, it's, when did the internet become Facebook? What is that? That The internet is not Facebook. The internet, we have so many different sites and technologies that exist to help you communicate directly to an audience. And you can take advantage of them. It's not like you can't also use the intermediaries. Obviously, they're powerful. But, you know, there have to be alternatives. And also, you know, I'm old enough to remember when there was no Twitter and there was a MySpace and, there, and, and also when their Microsoft seemed like it was going to run the world. Right? So change happens. Um, and so, you know, what can I say? I'm a professional optimist. It's kind of my job. Um, but, but I really do, I think if you could try to take a long view, even though it feels like, you know, we just have a few companies dominating everything right now, I don't actually think that's how it's going to be 10 years from now. So with that uh, optimistic admonition towards dynamism, I'd like to ask you all to join me in thanking the panel. Grab a shovel and think of the cat. Uh, if we don't stand up to them, someone will get. Uh, to grab a shovel and